So maybe Simon's sweeping the leg a little hard at, at the office. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. Let's put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me. Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. And I have a voice. Ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the Following Films Network. So, speaking of the Following Films Network, this week we have our special return guest. We have Hiro from the True Bromance Film Podcast to come and talk about the gift. So, thanks for being here, Hiro. I figured I'd, I'd bless you with the gift of another appearance on your show. Another drunk appearance. Yes, I appreciate it. Is there it. any other way to no, do this? I'm convinced no. you can't talk until you had a drink. Like, it's <laughs> it's uh, physically impossible. You know, the only show that I go on to sober is uh, War Machine versus War Horse. That's true. I, I, I try to go on sober because that didn't well, get me all twisted up. Well, somebody's got to carry the weight on that show. So you can't come Absolutely. in like that. Yeah. That and I need to be completely lucid to understand that uh, oh, accent. That ridiculous accent. That's true. It's a good yeah. point. Yeah. So as I mentioned, this week we're doing the get, we're doing the gift, we're doing the gift and psychological trauma, uh, and we're doing that because it comes at night comes out uh, this week, and that also stars Joel Edgerton, who is one of the stars of the gift. So we're doing kind of a week of horror movies with Joel Edgerton. Uh, so, but before we get into that, uh, why don't you tell people about your show and where they can listen? So you can find us on Following Films. We're a part of that uh, glorious network. Uh, we're the True Romance Film Podcast on there. It's me and my buddy Barry uh, just doing what I'm about to do here and be very drunk and uh, <laughs> talk nonsense about movies and try to banter with a friend. Um, you can, you know, Google that and you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, all that stuff. So Google True Romance. This week we'll be talking about Band of Brothers, uh, like apparently by ourselves, and uh, Wonder Woman. Uh, nice. So That's perfect. should be a fun week. Perfect combination. All yeah. right. Uh, so before Thanks, we... <laughs> before I talk about the psychological stuff, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? Absolutely. So I... I... I thought long and hard on this one. Actually, not really. You took I, like I drank a couple ten of beers. seconds. Is that? Yeah, it's long and hard. <laughs> I was thinking about uh, the the main guy Simon here, uh, played by uh, Jason Bateman, mm -hmm. and it, they kind of had an interplay with Gordo the Weirdo, where he, he talks about Simon Says. It was like his mm -hmm. his yeah. uh, mantra, or trying to get elected the class president when they were in high school, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I went with that. I, I, I piggybacked two movies that that. Simon Says features prominently in them. Okay. And uh, so the first one I've got here is a, uh, it's from 1995. It's Die Hard with the, with the Vengeance. Oh, nice. Okay. It's I'm actually following you. Decent, yeah. yeah it's a pretty decent uh, follow-up to the kind of like downturn that the second one took, oh, right? Totally this, this agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's actually like for, for me, like obviously when you talk about great sequels, like you're going to talk about The Godfather Part Two and Empire Strikes Back. And then there's the kind of the the good ones and then there's a lot of really bad ones i think this is one of the good ones like i think it's a really really good sequel yeah i think it I'd... capitalizes on bruce willis and kind of brings in these other supporting players who you actually care about unlike in die hard 2 absolutely this is the uh two towers of uh the die hard series so that's what i got for that one and okay. my other one is is the one i really love they're passionate about it's 1993's demolition man <laughs> jesus 
<laughs> we got Stallone and uh, Snipes going head to head. And I saw uh, that West... in the theater. I saw that. As did I. As, sure. as everybody should. That's a cool Sand- Sandra Bullock That's too, right? Benjamin Bratt, the Peruvian yep. prince, uh, <laughs> doing his thing. But uh, Wesley Snipes plays Simon Phoenix, and he, you know, does the Simon Says thing quite a bit. It's just a crazy movie, and it's it's, nuts. it's got yeah, I love it, man. I I think it's fun. This is like the the epitome of these two guys, you know, just hamming it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got uh, Dennis Leary in there, just you know, throwing <laughs> it. It was at the height of his, um, you know, bullet time sort of stand up comedy yes. uh, technique that he threw out there. But uh, yeah, that's that's what I got for you, buddy. Nice. Those, <laughs> those definitely would not uh, be on the list of things I was expecting to go <laughs> to go with the gift. So I appreciate you keeping us on our toes. All Try right. to impress, buddy. Try to impress. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a break. I will t- talk about psychological trauma, and then we'll bring Hyro back to talk about the gift. This is Chris Maynard. I'm host of the following films podcast. Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking hell or high water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on Deepwater Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. Even better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com, check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son, Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. Okay, so it's time for the psychological section. So today, as I mentioned, we're talking about psychological trauma. So trauma, if you separate out from psychological, it's it's usually used to describe injury to the body. So psychological trauma is a type of damage to the mind that occurs when you go under any event that causes you severe distress. So it can be the product of lots of stress that exceeds your ability to cope or it can stop you from integrating the emotions involved with the experience. So the traumatic event is your experience or repeating events of being overwhelmed. And this can happen over weeks, years, decades. It can happen over your whole life as you you struggle to cope with the circumstances, which can lead to pretty serious bad consequences for you. But trauma, psychological trauma is not like physical trauma. Physical trauma, I think you have a pretty good idea of how to treat it, and it's pretty much the same on most people, pretty much. But psychological trauma actually differs between individuals, and it's because it's a subjective experience. So what that also means is not everyone who experiences the same trauma will become psychologically traumatized. Like some people could, you know, there are people out there who have been in abusive, physically abusive or emotional, especially emotionally abusive relationships and come out, okay, fine. And some people in those same kind of relationships will come out and will be traumatized for years. So it's, there's this discrepancy. Um, and that's because we all go into these situations with with different experiences and something we look at like a protective factor. So if you're someone who had like a good childhood and has a good support system, right, and you go through an abusive relationship, you might you might come out and be okay. But if you're someone who has not been supported, and now this is one more example of not being supported, it's going to be a lot harder to be resilient. So in terms of actual definitions, the DSM defines trauma as a direct personal experience of an event that involves actual or threatened death or serious injury, threat to one's physical integrity, witnessing an event that involves the above experience, learning about unexpected or violent death, serious harm or threat of death, or injury experienced by a family member or close associate. Memories associated with the trauma are implicit, preverbal, and cannot be recalled, but may be triggered by stimuli from the environment. 
The person's response to aversive details of the traumatic event involve intense fear, helplessness, or horror. In children, it can be manifested as disorganized or agitative behaviors. So, I mean, I think if you know anything about the movie, you know uh, Gordon kind of goes through a lot, and especially what his father does to him. I think you can uh, you can put him in this category. So trauma can be caused by a big number of things, but there are some common things. So there's frequently a violation of the person's ideas about the world and their own rights and puts the person in this extreme state of insecurity. So this is also seen when you're dependent on institutions for survival and those institutions, you know, betray your trust and cause these kind of separations for you. But it can also be caused by people. So, of course, sometimes uh, these psychologically traumatic experiences, uh, they also involve physical trauma, which I, uh, which I mentioned earlier. So typical causes of psychological trauma can include harassment, abandonment, abusive relationships, physical assault, sexual abuse, uh, discrimination, police brutality, uh, bullying, um, domestic violence, uh, being the victim of an alcoholic parent. I mean, these lists go on and on and on. And if you have kind of long-term exposure to these things, the trauma gets worse and worse. So actually, there are some theories that suggest that this childhood trauma can actually increase your risk for disorders, including PTSD, substance abuse, and depression. All right, so let's talk about the symptoms a little bit. So of course, the severity of these symptoms is going to depend on the person, the type of trauma they suffer, and the support they have from their friends and family. So after the experience, a person may do what's called re-experiencing the trauma, both physically and mentally. And what they will do because of this is they'll try to avoid reminders of the trauma, things you would call triggers. And these things aren't necessarily exactly what you would think of. Like there are many people who um, come home from the military with PTSD and it's not just, you know, staying away from gun ranges, but a lot of, a lot of people will stay away from crowded places. They'll stay away from, uh, from traffic because cars may backfire and it might sound like a gunshot. There's a lot of things that can be triggering. So, and a lot of people will turn to substances like alcohol because it helps them numb everything and kind of escape the feelings that they're getting. So re-experience symptoms are a sign that the body and mind are kind of struggling to cope with this trauma experience. Something else that also happens sometimes uh, right after this re-experiencing is intense feelings of anger. And even in their, uh, even in inappropriate situations, because if you're re-experiencing, danger always seems to be just around the corner. So it's smart to kind of be, to be in that trigger space and be angry. So these upsetting memories that will come across in images, flashbacks, or thoughts, or even nightmares, so, so they'll endure those too. So because of this, insomnia may occur because it's, it feels safer to not, to not sleep, to not dream, because then you can't, be, uh, you can't be kind of taken by surprise. Another important aspect is the person may not actually remember what happened during their trauma. So because of this, the, the traumatic experience will be constantly experienced as if they're happening right now because you don't see it as a memory. You have no perspective on the experience. So this can produce this pattern of uh, really prolonged acute arousal, and then you'll get physically and mentally exhausted, of course. Like imagine you're in a life-threatening situation all the time. Of course you're going to be exhausted. And it can lead to other mental health disorders like acute stress and anxiety disorder. Uh, also, traumatic grief, uh, conversion disorders, borderline personality disorder, adjustment disorder. Like, again, the list kind of continues on because it can have a lot of bad effects. We also talked about emotional exhaustion. That can set in, too, and that can lead to uh, emotional detachment, 
dissociation uh, and what what patients would call kind of numbing out, like you don't feel anything anymore, which is like it probably feels safer, but then you're not living your full life either. All right, so I guess the most important thing to cover is how to treat psychological trauma. So there's a lot of psychotherapy approaches that have been designed with the treatment of trauma in, in mind. Uh, one of them is, is uh, EMDR, um, something called progressive counting, uh, biofeedback, family systems therapy. Uh, so there's a bunch. Um, but there's a large body of empirical support, and that just means the, the research supports it, um, for the use of cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. Uh, and this can treat a lot of trauma-related symptoms, uh, including PTSD. Uh, the Institution of Medicine um, identified cognitive behavioral therapies as the most effective treatments for PTSD. Um, so two of these specifically, prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy, are being used nationally at, at the VA hospitals for the treatment of PTSD, which is where you're going to see the majority of PTSD cases. Now, recent studies have shown that a combination of treatments, including something called dialectical behavior therapy, which uh, was originally started by Marsha Linehan for treatment of, of uh, borderline personality disorder, and exposure therapy are highly effective in treating psychological trauma. But if the trauma has caused dissociation, or what we call complex PTSD, there's another, there's another kind of treatment called the trauma model approach, which works better than a simple cognitive approach. So now what I'm about to tell you as far as like trauma therapy is very general. We're not going to get into specifics of each type of therapy because uh, we might do episodes later that are on specific types of therapy. But usually the processes involved in trauma therapy are first psychoeducation, um, which is basically just giving people information about, about trauma and about coping. And then emotional regulation. So you identify, you identify some grounding thoughts and emotions that will kind of bring you back to a baseline. So you're able to regulate your emotions. And then cognitive processing. So that idea is to transform negative perception and perceptions and beliefs to positive ones about the self, others, and environment through what's called cognitive reframing. And the next you do trauma processing. So this is what's called systematic desensitization. So basically you are putting yourself uh, in the mindset or in the place, not necessarily of your trauma, but something similar, and you kind of work your way, you're, you work your way up this like little ladder of um, of trauma, of traumatic emotions, and kind of the the longer you sit in it, the more you realize, okay, this sucks, this is bad, but it will pass. So although when you're re-experiencing it, feels like this will never end, this is teaching you that it will, and then emotional processing. Um, so then you're reconstructing perceptions, beliefs, and what they call erroneous expectations about these trauma-related fears. Like if if I hear this sound, if I experience this, if I'm in a crowded place, I will die. Those are those are actual thoughts that you will hear from people who are suffering from trauma. Um, so the idea is to habituate yourself to these emotions and experience these emotions until they kind of until the uh, the emotions get less and less intense. And then you move to experiential processing a visualization of this kind of relief state and relaxation methods. And sometimes with the trauma and emotional processing, you move your way up the ladder and you actually go do something out in the real world. Like there, you know, if let's say, and these are, these are based on actual cases, but let's say someone's family member died in a, died in front of a train, right? So then the kind of experiential lesson is you're going to go out and you're going to be in, be at the train tracks, and watch the train go by. And that's something people who had experienced that kind of trauma even 
you know, even just seeing it happen or knowing about it happening will experience that trauma and they'll completely avoid the train tracks. So that's one, one example of how, how we would kind of move someone experientially into a place where they can now operate in the daily world. All right. So that's it for a psychological section. Um, I think you can, if you've seen the movie, I think you can see how, how Gordon uh, really and really inhabits this idea of psychological trauma. And it really has, you know, created this kind of stuck point for him and he hasn't moved on. So Hiro and I will talk about that. Uh, but first we will take a little break and then we will come back and talk about the gift. Hey everyone, I'm Jason Michael. And I'm Lee Brady, and we're the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. We're a podcast that looks to analyze what makes films great with a warm atmosphere and a good laugh. New releases, retrospectives, and absolute classics all reassessed and reviewed. You can find the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio. And if you're looking for a more direct approach, you can find us on Twitter. Just look for Jason Michael at Atlantic SC and Lee Brady at Big Pick Reviews. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. All right, so we're back. It's time to talk about the movie. So let's talk about a little bit like our, our history with this movie, although it's relatively short. This is a pretty recent film. Uh, this is a movie when I went to see it. It was a little bit – it was like probably two or three weeks after it opened. Uh, so there was a lot of hype for this movie. Like people – like that first week, it got a lot of great word of mouth. So my expectations were definitely pretty high. And I think actually probably a little bit too high. Like I think I actually liked it more on rewatch than I did the first time through. Like I enjoyed it the first time through, but I wasn't like wowed by it. But there's a lot of things in this movie the second time through that I really enjoyed that I either missed or wasn't as impressed by the first time. What about you? So I remember doing a show on this movie. <laughs> so I actually went back. I'm a, I'm a pack rat. So I keep all of my notes and all of the files and all the stuff that go into a podcast. So I actually pull up the old notes and I'm looking through it. And at the time we used to give scores on the movie. And I remember being positive on the film, but I didn't realize it was like eight out of 10 positive. What? But then when I look at the notes, um, they're all negative. It was just all nonsense, <laughs> just mocking the movie and that kind of stuff. But, on true uh, romance, hard to hard to envision that. It Oops. happens. It happens sometimes. <laughs> but the the movie is kind of one of those blank slates for me on the second time. And because I, I as I was going through the notes, I didn't know what they meant. Like there was just <laughs> notes of like worst trivia ever, and I had no idea what that meant until I rewatched. Uh, I know what you're talking about. Was, yeah. <laughs> and I will say on the rewatch, I'm I'm the same as you, man. I actually appreciate this movie a lot more on the second on the second time around and I may have kind of changed my tune on some of the characters and some of that stuff. Oh. So, uh, we can get into that later, but yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. So if you guys are out there, uh, looking for, uh, some revisionist history, go check out episode 72 of, uh, the true romance <laughs> film podcast where we talked about the gift. God, that was a long time ago. Good. Oh yeah. We're like at 160 now or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, so let's dive into the direction of the gift. So this is directed by a first time director. This is directed by one of the stars by Joel Edgerton. I think the first time through, that's what impressed me the most about this movie actually was it, it doesn't necessarily feel like it doesn't feel like a seasoned director, but it also doesn't feel like a first time director. Like he's pretty, he's pretty capable behind the camera. There's not a lot of camera tricks. There's not a lot of like really crazy things he's doing, but he's, he's very confident behind the camera and he kind of knows, he knows how to place his camera around, especially in, in our two main characters home to create some interesting shots and some interesting moments. So I was actually really impressed by him being a first time director. Yeah. I, it, the second time around, I, I was really looking out for that. 
and uh, there was a shot towards the end of the film, and this isn't a spoiler, but uh, it's in a hospital, and he's and Gordo is looking at um, at Simon, but through sort of like the hospital window that has uh, sort of like this metal grate through it, and it kind of fades out, or is it in reverse? Who Simon's looking at Gordo, you know, whatever. But it's just such an interesting shot because it's all faded and it, it feels very like confusing mm-hmm. and it sort of adds a little something to the film. So I think that he, like you're saying, I think he's he's not, you know, coming out the gate swinging like Scorsese or something <laughs> right. like that. But yeah. <laughs> he's not, he's not, uh, you know, some mutt, you right. know, throwing out just throwing things at the camera saying what sticks. I think he's he's very defined and confident in what he's trying to do and i think he really succeeded succeeds at it yeah in watching this the second time there was there was a shot near the beginning of the film that really stuck with me there's there's a shot of rebecca hall's character kind of staring out the window of their new home this gorgeous like almost palatial home that somehow they can afford and it's got the house this, that simon built yes exactly uh and it's got this just amazing view of the city right like just stunning and in another movie it would be like oh what a nice moment but the way that's played by her and the way it's shot by him i think you really get a sense of even before you know anything about this woman this overpowering sense of loneliness and sadness in her and i thought like what a great way to do that like without any dialogue without wasting a bunch of time with like well she's on these medications and this is what's happening like they save that for a little That's later i was thinking i was like maybe she's just high as a kite seeing <laughs> it that expansive like that that giant expanse maybe she's just at home just popping pills you know on that scissor <laughs> Having a good old time. Yeah, I just I saw it? that I saw that shot and I just thought like what a what a great way to get across the fact that this woman in this you know what a lot of people would see as this great or perfect circumstance is really sad and really lonely in this life. And I thought like from a directorial perspective, like a really excellent choice. Yeah, she's high. <laughs> She's clearly high. I also thought because of choices by the director, you always – and I actually wasn't sure how he felt about this the first time through where she is always the one in danger, I think, uh, except for like maybe at the very end of the film. And she's still kind of used as bait via this videotape at the end. But she's always the one who's in these precarious positions. Like you feel like she's being watched when she's coming out of the shower. You know, she's being attacked. She's – you know, all these things are happening to her. And it definitely puts us in this mindset of being worried for her throughout the whole movie. But like from like a gender perspective, it was kind of like why is she the one who always has to be in danger from Gordo the weirdo as opposed to as opposed to Simon? What did you think about that as it was going? Well, I think that we get to see why Gordo the weirdo earns his reputation. Uh, sure. You know, throughout the film. So and I think she is the weak spot to I and I'm trying to talk around spoilers is No, you can spoil the whole movie. It's oh, all or, or, Yeah, oh, yeah. Don't do a spoiler. Th- no, uh, that's only for new oh, releases. Shit. Go ahead. Man, okay, then. <laughs> well, Jason Jason Bateman is, is is the strong bully and it's yeah. they have a they have a strong history, so he's going after the weakness. You know, he's going that's after true. the perceived weakness, which is and it's not just the weakness that she's a woman or not that she's weak, that she's the housewife or that she's popping pills she's, nice. she's at home. No, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> she's nice, but She's also a weakness to Simon where right. he is very much over the moon for her. Uh, Simon is, right? I mean, he, Simon's a dick, right. but Simon loves her. He He's, does care you know, about her, even if there are things so. 
there are things he does in the movie or even before the movie actually happens, like in his past, that she hates, that she despises. But I don't think there's ever a scene in the movie where like, yeah, they get in fights and there are mean things said or cruel things said, but he never like starts off going on the attack towards her, I don't think. Right, right. So Gordo is going after the underbelly, you know, which is which what she is to him. And uh, I think that that's that's definitely the case. I mean, you know, you know, he's a strong provider, you know, Mm -hmm. giving her a a, a, a beautiful, charming home while she sits at home and, you know, lines up the shots and the and the too many windows in that house, man. They should have done something about that. No good. Uh, But yeah, (laughs) I, I, I do think that the direction kind of frames that really well. You know, yeah, yeah. Even though it kind of uses some of the old techniques that you see in like slasher horror films and you know they camera through the window watching her etc cetera, etc cetera, that the, kind of stuff the jump scare with the dog like yeah of course sure. you know that kind of stuff um it still works though because i think it's framed in 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 an artistic way throughout the mm-hmm. film so it's it's sprinkled in it's just not used too much you know i think he's very judicious with those things and he doesn't just go over the top yeah, I think the last thing I wanted to bring up as far as the direction, I thought wh- there was one there's one scene in particular right before essentially right before she's, you know, drugged and passed passes out. Um and raped. Don't forget that. Maybe. Rapist. Maybe. We don't know. We don't know if it happened or not. I mean I think I, it's implied. I think it's implied with his in- immense care for that child at the back end. I think it's implied that you that, that he, he wants he, you to believe it, or that he wants he wants Simon to not know whether it's true or not. I think oh, that's the course. important thing to him. So I'm I I don't know how I what I think actually happened. I'm still not sure. Like even watching it the second time, I'm not sure if he did something or he didn't, or if it's worth it. If it's worth enough just to get inside his head, but Rapist. maybe I just have a positive view of people, and you just you just assume rape. That's, well, Gordon's that's... a sick bastard, of course. <laughs> You know, I, I'm I'm coming after him. He's killing animals. He's he's just an animal. He's just the breaking dog, things. The dog came back. It's fine. Or are the fish not animals? Oh yeah, I guess I don't I don't How really care about you? fish. Look at you. Wow, look <laughs> if at it's you. not a dog or a cat, I don't care. Just prejudice against against fish. You I'm I mean? vicious. That's right. Yes. So that's one true. animal is better than the other. Yes. Is that how you live your yes. Life? Yes. Absolutely. So, yes. So one color of a person is different. Oh, here than the other. we go. Going? One no. gender is different. Come on, Dave. I, you're better than this. You're better than this, Dave. All right. I'm gonna edit all Just this out. You son of a bitch. So last thing I want to bring up. How dare you? I won't edit you out. Uh, that scene where she passes out, I love that it's always giving you these this pregnancy image throughout the entire movie. Like you have the um, – what do you call it? Like the mobile um, earlier in the film that they keep kind of pulling out and reminding you of what's going on there. And as, is it a mobile or is it a mobile? A, a mo- I think it's a mobile. <laughs> This is really important. I have three kids. I think it's called a mobile. Okay, well, then you're the expert. You keep having kids, so it's a mobile. Fine. Good enough. Um, But the scene where the Gatorade falls, it actually – it falls in such a way and spills in such a way where it spills like right between her legs. And the shot is from the legs down. It's very much like a water-breaking imagery, um, which I didn't notice the first time through. And then as I was watching this again, I was like, oh, wow, what an interesting way to shoot that. Because there's a thousand ways you can shoot that sequence. And I think it's really interesting that the shot is essentially between her legs with like this liquid coming down from from up above that you can't see where it's coming from. And I, I that certainly was really did notice that. The only thing that really stuck out to me in that sequence was the footprints coming up 
behind her. Mm. Uh, and I, and it, it almost I, I took it as a flaw. It didn't quite pay off to me because I, I know where the footprints are coming from. But at the in the first time you sh- you see the uh, the sequence, because they, sh- they play it twice, don't they? They, they play it one, yes. a second time at the back end. The, the first time you see the footprints and it's just it's a little confusing to me as to what's going on. Mm. And um, the, the, I think that. I don't know if this is direction with the script writing, but he telegraphs a few things like this sequence with the footprints. And then the, there's a sequence with the folder when she's kind of going through his stuff and, and the folder of his coworker or, or his rival comes up. Yeah. I, I was like, oh, that's obvious. The Danny guy. Right. Um, there are definitely some shortcuts taken with the kind of detective work that the wife is yes. doing here. Like, it's, yeah. it's like, let's just get through this. We don't need this to be longer than two hours. Let's just we're going to take these quick shortcuts that it'll be fine. God bless your little hearts for keeping it short, man. Yeah. <laughs> just keep it just keep it uh, crisp. Absolutely. Yes, I think both of us think like, uh, despite this being a first time director, like this is a pretty capable job. And I actually would like to see him direct more. I don't know that if he if he has anything else. He doesn't. Kind of I actually was, you know, this kind of like I, I went through his uh, filmography and stuff. I was like, oh, man, I wonder what he's doing next. Because usually somebody's very successful like this. Right. And it was a successful first outing. Yeah. You would think that. Okay, we get back on the bike, you know, like I guess he okay, wants I to act it. more, I guess. Right. Like that's Ben Affleck does Gone Baby Gone and suddenly he's got Argo and, you know, Batman's and all kinds of nonsense going on. Yeah. And uh We Own the Night or whatever that thing was, or Ooh, what is that thing? Don't... Is that what it was called? Something. It was, it was bad is what it was. It's yeah. a bad movie. So I don't even but... want to bother looking up the title because <laughs> Yeah, but he's got nothing on the on the horizon, you know. Yeah. So uh, hopefully he's he's uh, maybe he's writing something, which would yeah, be cool. Maybe. All right, so let's move into the acting. So, of course, we basically have just three characters to talk about here. I mean, you have these kind of ancillary characters. You know, you've got the, like, the friendly how neighbor and the boss not, and, you know. How dare you not respect Busy Phillips? <laughs> I doubt that's the first person to disrespect Busy Phillips. Uh, so, but we were just talking about Joel Edgerton uh, as a director. So let's talk about him as an actor. I was, like, I was kind of stunned by this performance, actually, because I had seen him in other things that he's usually – Playing a character that's more kind of alpha, more masculine than this. Right. So to see him like really dive into this ridiculously – and I say ridiculous not in a way that it comes off as comical, but like this very, very awkward character and plays it really well, both with the vocal tendencies and the the way he does or doesn't make eye contact and how he interacts with people. Like I was actually really impressed by this performance. He does this like affectation with his voice and and I was trying to pinpoint it. I was like rewinding the movie. And it's something about the pace and of of his uh, speaking, mm-hmm. uh, and it just makes him sound real awkward. It's like and stunted he, almost. Yes. Yeah. And he's also doing a like a New York sort of accent sort of thing. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. But aren't they like in L.A. or something or San Francisco, California? I think area? so. Yeah, I think they're right. In California, so it's yeah. kind of it's kind of out of place. Yeah. But I think it was fantastic. I mean, I think him and Bateman are are over the moon in this like it's perfect casting between those two guys yeah um and it's also both of them it's casting that you wouldn't expect like i talked about with um with with joel edgerton like this is not the character he usually plays and jason bateman usually like he's known for playing the straight man he's known for playing kind of the nice guy who's in a stressful situation and he's the fucking he's the villain I mean, he's Ooh, he, he's terrible. He is. Down. He is not the he's villain. Absolutely, the man the villain. is providing a great home for his wife. Like, okay, I just think because you're a bully, you just you automatically align yourself. With. 
you know, Bateman has this whole big speech where, you know, he's like, hey, man, I bully pe- I bullied the kid. And, he, you know, I feel bad for it. But everybody gets bullied. Some people come through. Some people don't. It's like, <laughs> what's so bad about the bullying that this guy did? Not only that, let's talk about the the financial situation here. The guy is is going above and beyond to put a you know good meal on the table. So he's so he's trying to bend the rules, you know. So basically what I'm hearing what I'm hearing here is as long as you have money as long as you have money and you take care of your wife, it doesn't matter what you've done. You could kill people. It's fine. But you're you're, but you're just saying like I mean that given the the story, like that easily could have gone the route of a suicide. Like that wouldn't have surprised me at all. And that's not his fault. He bullied the guy. I mean, you know, I got bullied when I was little. You know, I'm sure you get bullied every day. I mean, look at you. But, I barely uh, listen to people. It's hard to get bullied when you don't pay attention. <laughs> like, what? No, but, didn't even catch that. Uh, you know, let's not, let's, let's not throw stones here at old, uh, old Simon. You know, he's putting a good home on. She can stay home, pop pills all day, drink all day. You know, uh, cavort with uh, Gordo, whatever she wants. Hang out with Busy Phillips. It's yeah, hang out with busy. Who doesn't want to hang out with busy Phillips? And who's providing that? Simon. Simon and, and says so, so. So maybe Simon's sweeping the leg a little hard at, at the office. A little bit, yeah, a little bit. Like just not only looking into people, but like setting them up to fail so he gets his. The real villain is Danny over there throwing rocks and stuff and trying to attack people while they're trying to have some good wine. What's wrong with him? You know, it this reminds me of an episode of War Machine versus War Horse where he. Where uh, maybe it was Denniston that he said something to the effect of uh, defending Cameron uh, Cameron Diaz's character. In, yes, uh, Vanilla in, Sky. Uh, in Vanilla Sky, like, look, she just wants to come over, have sex, and drink some soup. <laughs> the guy's just trying to provide a good home for his wife, man. And and, and you got this dude who's who's got some psychological trauma, and he, you know, he's he's. He's, he's Psychological trauma inflicted by who again? Why is that? Apparently. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. <laughs> but regardless, whether you see him as, as the villain or an anti-hero, I think in your it's case, well cast. He is, it's a shocking casting, too, because you're not used I to seeing him. I think you're just perfect. It, it is, but I think like with his career up to this point, I was definitely not used to seeing him play this kind of character. So when he turns about halfway through this movie and starts admitting to some of the things he he does and like basically and taunting his wife like, oh, you just want all those women to say sorry. Like it's like, oh, my God, this motherfucker like this is but it's actually it's really well played. It doesn't feel a lot of people would play this. They would play it up in such a way where it felt false. And it never feels that way. These feel like real people and real arguments that happen in marriages. And you scurry around behind my fucking back and you dig up some idiot from my past. Just talk to me. I'm not talking to you about shit because it's garbage. Admit that you told a story. Stop talking. That nearly got someone killed. Stop. His father tried to kill him. Stop. Stop. He tried to burn him. Forget it. Simon, what you said affected people's lives. His father was arrested for attempted murder. No. His dad knocked him around a little, and now it's 25 years later, and the story's been blown out of proportion. That's all. So you do know. Holy shit. I'm an asshole, Robin, okay? I made his life a living hell, and I treated him like shit. Is that what you're trying to figure out? That I was an asshole? I was an asshole. Okay. I think what he, his casting does, and and all of, all of their performances do this is, it creates a sense of sort of ambiguity with the characters. You know, I I messing around and defending Bateman a little bit here, or defending Simon a little bit here, but 
I think that what I'm saying has some validity. Like he's not a, like a hundred percent a villain, but they all have their giant faults. Oh you know, yeah, Gordo is obviously a sick rapist. You know, killing killing animals, even though Dave doesn't care. Who cares about Dave's fish? Like, Dave's em. like, give me the lemon and the butter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> give me some koi sashimi. We'll be good to go. But she's also, you know, have a, just a drug problem. You know, yeah. she's just a severe drug problem, and um, she's also a little sort of aggressive in her complaints. She's just, yeah, she's not portrayed in the best light. Uh, I think that's I think one of the they, things I like about this is there's no exactly, pure character yes. here. There's no and, like, oh, shining light of a hero in this story. They're all messed up. Yeah, they're all messed up and they're all villains. They're all positive. And I think that the, that's what I took the, out of the second view of this is is that it's just a fun, ambiguous sort of mess. And uh, that's something you don't really get that often. So speaking of the wife character here, played by Rebecca Hall, um, who I think is good here. I, I think I think she gets kind of the short end of things as far as what she gets to do as a character. Like her job in a lot of a lot of senses in this movie is to be helpless. She does have her moments where she gets to stand up and gets to kind of fight for herself. Um, but I think sometimes, as you mentioned, she comes off almost too aggressive in those sequences where you're like, okay, like let's. She's a nag. Yeah. She's settled down, man. <laughs> and it, it's kind of upsetting because I think Rebecca Hall is a real, a genuinely great actress. I think last year she was in a movie called Christine, which to me was the best female performance and maybe the best performance overall all year long. It's just fantastic. And I think it's on like Amazon Prime or Netflix at this point. So if you haven't seen that, watch Christine because it's incredible. Um, So I think. Knock your head right off. Yes. (laughs) Nice. Very nice. Spoilers. Um, But. That was a bad joke. <laughs> but uh, but I think she does as well as she can with the material here. I don't think this this is not a character that has a supreme amount of depth, but she gives it kind of all that you possibly can. Yeah, and but I, I see you're you're coming at it with like that she's not given a lot, but I think that the character is written just right for this movie, right? She's Oh yeah, it fits. Yeah. She's, she's gotta toe that line of of annoying. And at the same time, damsel in distress. Um, of course, to me, you know, a grizzled veteran of uh, <laughs> of what? <laughs> of, <laughs> a grizzled veteran of, of multiple marriages. You know, you got. Oh, look okay, at fair it enough. Fair enough. And say like, oh god, this lady, man, she's so annoying. I would have divorced her already. <laughs> I would have taken another mulligan. <laughs> Hyra would have tapped out like yeah, five months God, in. Like, nope, we're good. We're yeah, done here. Like, yes. Like, I'm not trying to sow some seeds with her, man. She's <laughs> God knows what she's doing with those drugs. But no, I think she does give a good performance, man. Um, I think that uh, she takes what what is probably almost like a blank slate and runs with it, and yeah, just really good job. I, all three of them are were great. Yeah, and I think this is something else uh, to talk about as far as Edgerton's direction is that if there's one performance out of these three that falters a little bit, this movie doesn't work. Like you have to care at some level about all three of them. And he's able as a director and as an actor to to kind of balance all of that. I think all three of these performances are really good. No, definitely. All right. So let's talk about the writing of this. This is – Something that when I sat down to watch this, I was like, God, what am I going to say about the writing of of this movie? But there's actually a lot here and some things that like I probably noticed like subconsciously but didn't really – 
didn't really take in on the first view. Like there's that whole – one of my favorite sequences is the Simon Says sequence where he tells that story about Simon as he's you know trying to become um, – trying to become class president back when they were in school together. And what I realized as I was watching this again is like Simon Says is exactly what happened to Gordo. Simon said something about him and it came true as far as everyone else knew. And it caused all these problems with his life, with his family, with everything that happened to him kind of from that point on. And I thought like, what a great little piece of writing to throw that in there. And and, and there are moments definitely where it feels a little unnatural. Like, why are you telling this story? But when it's coming from Gordo and he's trying to prove a point and he's trying to like kind of plant these seeds for later, I thought it worked really well and even better on second viewing than on first. I think that sort of unnatural way of uh, unnatural timing of telling the story really fits well with the character that's been drawn up here by Edgerton. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this movie does a great job of turning the tables. Um, you know, you start off and you're looking at Gordo and you're seeing his kind of behavior. You don't know what's going on and you're you're immediately just almost repulsed by Gordo. Yeah. And because he's creepy, he's setting this whole thing up with the uh, the fake house and all that stuff. And the fish, the dog, the notes. The Who gift, cares about down. the fish? But the, <laughs> then you get this like immediate flip and then yeah. she's on the pills. Then you get this another flip and it's revealed that, you know, like Bateman's, you know, fucking his friend over and, you know, right. messing Gordo over and all that stuff. And and, and, and it just it the the script changes over and over and over. You never have a chance to sit down in your seat, lean back and pick a pick a, a, a protagonist. Yeah. You, know, you never you never pick a home team. And I think that's all in the script, man. And I think that's great. Yeah. I think that that's the way these movies should be written because it, it helps separate it from a traditional sort of horror movie, a jump scare movie where you have the guy in the mask or you have the guy with the glove and the hat and the sweater and <laughs> right. and all that stuff. <laughs> and you immediately know who it is, you know. Uh, monster is the guy with the mask. Victim is the lady having sex with her boobies out. You know right. what I'm saying? Yeah. That's it. Yeah, I do like that it does a lot of gray area. Does keep you on your toes for sure. And I think it's it's interesting to watch it a second time because you know all this going in. And there was something I noticed in the in the writing of the film near the beginning of the film when uh, the husband and wife go to this you know go to this party this event at at his job and the way he introduces her. He he like forces her to brag. And when she doesn't, he brags for her. And you could tell like, oh, for him, this is all this is not it's almost like it's not it's outside of reality. This is a show. I have to I have to be a certain person and my wife has to be a certain person. And I don't care if it makes her uncomfortable because it's going to get us ahead. And it was something that like I totally like the first time I went, I watched it, I was like, oh, whatever. Like that happens. Like, you know, husbands and wives interact like that. And one of them's a little bit shy and a little bit anxious and is not going to want to pump themselves up. And the other one pumps them up. But watching it again with viewing him as like not this stereotypical nice guy, it, it I think it gives you an insight into their relationship and what he thinks she needs to be. There was another thing that I noticed, and this probably goes back more to direction than to the script, is that he constantly is drinking, you know, and, yeah. I, and you know, you're the the astrologist, so you know more about this than I do. You know more about someone, drinking every day than I do. I think you're the hey, expert here. Well, I don't know a lot about kicking it, so <laughs> that's not <laughs> So when somebody's trying to fight an addiction, you know, having somebody there who's just pounding them back. And, and it doesn't help. Pounding yeah. them back. 
yeah, it doesn't help. And he's not very supportive. You know, he's having this argument about about the, the pills and stuff. And he's like pounding back as he's got rock. scotch or whatever, like through the yeah. whole movie. Yeah. Did you notice that he's got like rolling rock and PVR constantly in his fridge? I'm like, what you should are know you, he's dude? a villain. Like just yes, based on that monster. I mean, <laughs> I love I how you totally not... switched on Simon. <laughs> like, yeah, like he's I'm not totally that bad. Him. Wait a minute, fucking PVR. Fuck you. PVR rolling rock. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought I was slumming it with my middle light over here, man. I'm like, what are you doing? But he's not a supportive dude. He's he's almost trying to change her by bullying her. Yeah, you know, like. By by like like overpowering her, it's this constant her to... applying pressure all yes. the time. Yeah. Yes, and 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 I and I hate to like you know hug a tree or or, or stoop down to your level, but <laughs> I would think that him being a little more cognizant of how hard it is to struggle with addiction, right. you know, and settle down on the bruise, bro. You right. Know, take it easy. <laughs> Go out and second. drink, or like you don't have to like right. just pound yeah. beers in front of her every night. Yeah. Like it's a social thing. I understand that when you're sure. trying it in a sales business, you got to go out there, you know, have a couple drinks and stuff like that. But you don't have to like come home and crack the PBR and throw the bottle cap at her. Like, look at me, I'm getting <laughs> crunk. It's time. So speaking of sales and his business, can we talk about the giant? plot hole in this movie and the fact that he works for a company high up in a company that is specialist in home security and he apparently doesn't have one <laughs> like people well, he just, just moved in people it just been installed that yet. should be the first thing you do man <laughs> like people just walk it in throwing rocks like just like no alarms go off in this entire movie and i'm like that's like gun that's, turret that's embarrassing man that is your job <laughs> that would be like it's if like i walked a... into your house and there was no alcohol i would be like what this doesn't make any sense that's disgusting this is... <laughs> that, would, that would never happen that would never happen exactly you know, this is you know what it reminds point. me of is uh What's the movie where uh, everybody has the day off and they could kill everybody in one day? Oh, oh, uh, the the purge. The purge. Ethan Hawke is a is a salesman for yeah, uh, same thing. Yep, for security and his the whole thing revolves around dudes who just walk on in. Just, just come on know. in, guys. Yeah, it's it's actually the only thing in this movie as far as script stuff that actually bothers me. Everything else, yeah. I'm like, this is really well done. And like, I think there were, there could have been a way to include that and have Gordo get around it. And like they just like if you're going to make that his job, like his job could have been anything. <laughs> they could have made him, you know, a sales rep for a pharmaceutical company. That would have been interesting and given his wife's problems. But the like security guys, these young upstart tech dudes. Like, yeah, why is it? That doesn't like, make a lot dude, of sense. <laughs> yeah. It, like, like the guys he's working for look like the guys that like run Facebook or run Google, not yeah. the guys who are in charge of security. <laughs> like, that's, like, like he should be an expert at dick pics because he, he works for Snapchat. <laughs> yes. You know, he, it's something like that. <laughs> not the security Perfect. The only other complaint I have is something I remembered while I was watching it. And it's not it's not the script's fault. It's it's the way this movie was marketed. I remember when I first saw the trailer for this, one of the scenes they show in the trailer um, is when she starts to figure out that he has done something in his past. Like, what did he mean about bygones be bygones? So you walk into this movie knowing at some level that this guy, your main character, did something that's at best shady. And that comes an hour into this movie. And I think this movie is way more interesting if that stuff takes you completely by surprise. Because up until then, he's a nice guy. And you're like, well, yeah, I mean, he's not real nice to Gordo, but he is kind of weird and kind of awkward. I could understand acting that way. But knowing going in that, like, he did something to him in the past, I think kind of kind of ruins it a little bit. I think the movie's better if you don't know that. 
No, I agree. It reminds me of what was it this week in the Great Baywatch where you've got the uh, oh the the, the cameos the people in the credits like settled did it's just like something one hundred and one like what are we doing here, man? Yep. But um, yeah, no, I agree with you. That stuff shouldn't have been in the trailers. Um, I have something to say, but you fucking blew my mind over here. <laughs> Just <laughs> the first time ever. Yeah. It's the middle um, of light over here. But I do think you're right that this I think the script's greatest strength is its ability to kind of turn on a dime and change these characters. Like there's there's the scene um where they go to Gordo what they think is Gordo's house and he has to leave for whatever reason and Jason Bateman's character does a pretty just some pretty fucked up things, like when he's kind of talking about Gordo. He's got his finger through the zipper of his fly and that whole sequence. So at that point, you don't like him very much, and you're like, I can't stand this guy. But then when and, – and, but then when you find out, oh, that's not even Gordon's house, then you switch on it and you feel like, oh, now I can't trust what this guy. What a monster. Yeah, yeah. What a monster. So th- and within the span of like maybe 15 minutes of screen time, you've switched villains two or three times, and that's really impressive stuff. And that's – that's exactly what I was getting. I mean, it's it's this gray area, but it's also this kind of jolt that the script gives you, right. and I, very impressive. And I, I really took more on that. Uh, and the second time around, man, you know what's funny is I keep going back to like the second time around, but I've got my old notes and then my new notes, and I've got like, uh, uh, you know, I was bored. At my one of my notes was I was bored at forty minutes in. Like I I, I checked my watch at forty. I was like, like this is goddamn boring. I'm done with it. <laughs> But then, you know, this time, now that I know that it's what's coming. Well, I think that's the about the time the movie so picks much. up, though. So that makes sense. Right. But now that I know where it's going, because at the time, I I, I don't think I even saw that trailer you were talking about where it just mm. gives that away. So for me, it was all brand new. And I was just like, God, get, get on with it already. You know, <laughs> I, I to me, it was marketed to me as like a very slashery sort of jump scary movie. Right. And that's what I was waiting for. So now that I kind of know where it's going, watching it in hindsight is – very fun to me yeah so i that whole i'm bored at 40 minutes critique that i had for it back in the day episode 72 of the true romance film <laughs> podcast it's not so much anymore because i know what's coming and i could see the groundwork being laid out there so yeah you know, yeah i yeah. think this this movie is much more well written than i thought it would be when i walked into the theater like you said, I think it was marketed in that way where this is like a stereotypical, like almost home invasion movie. Like I'm like, OK, I know what's going to happen. And this movie does take some turns that I wasn't expecting. Like even, you know, we talked about like changing your mind on the characters. There's even the sequence where you think for half a second uh, Simon's going to go apologize to Gordo and then ends up assaulting him in the parking lot. And what it's, a like, mutt. it's like, uh-huh. oh, my God, and he kicks over the records like, or the, tr- the, yep. the papers. Like, what are you doing over there? Come yeah. on, Simon. I was rooting for you. I'm defending you over there yep. about putting bread on the table, bacon in the in the bank account. And what are you doing? You're kicking yep. over the guy's, you know, shiny tie in his top hat and all this crap. <laughs> let the man live. Like, just ah, good mighty. Too far. All right. Settle down, Simon. So let's talk about the production value. So this is – I think the production value of this movie is really good, but like this – something about the house that it takes place in bothers me. It's like it's too nice. Like I get we're trying to like, oh, it's this idyllic life. She's got all this good stuff courtesy of Simon. (laughs) It's like this idyllic life. It's perfect. It has this giant view. It's got nothing but windows. It's huge and it's the opposite of what Gordon has, which I get. But there are moments where it's so nice it just – it starts to feel a little bit false to me. 
So I still like it, but there are definite moments where I'm like, okay, this starts to not feel real because this house is like, if you can afford this house, why do you need a fucking promotion? You're fine if you can afford this, you know, so that stuff starts to make a little less sense to me. What's wrong with you, man? This is Trump's America, man. More, more, more. We need more. Um, I think that the house doesn't bother me as much as it bothers you. I think that it informs the success that the bully has had later in life and it's kind of the rough times that the 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 bullied has had. So, I mean, it, it's it's an obvious plot device, but it's a right. It's an effective plot device, I think. I I don't have a problem with it. Um, the 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 dead koi were very convincing <laughs> to me. It hurt my heart to see an animal die like that. Oh, uh, here we go. <laughs> Poor crying Hiro. Every time he comes on the show, his heart is broken. <laughs> sad, sad, sad to see, man. Sad to see. Uh, Gordo's such an animal. Yes. But uh, no, but I, I think I think that this type of movie doesn't lend itself so much to production value as far as set and all this stuff because yeah. there's no big explosions there's no and it's not know, the slasher movie you think it is there's not these right. scenes where people are getting stabbed and gore blood. yeah yeah there's there's no arrow whistling by or right. there's no blue dude or green lady there's no none of that <laughs> stuff so but I also think like the the scenes in the hospital and the scenes at the karaoke bar like feel very real and very lived in. It doesn't like sometimes you'll see a scene in a like in any kind of public building like a hospital and they'll shoot it in there. And you're like, this just looks like, you know, the guys from Scrubs just left and like you just found a way to shoot here and it doesn't look real. But that stuff still worked for me. Uh, and sometimes when a movie changes settings that quickly, it can really kind of take you out of it. But whatever they did in those sequences, I think really worked. Um, and I think some of it is due to performances. Like you actually, like you believe that Rebecca's Hall, Rebecca Hall's character has just been through this and that really helps. But like, I, there's not a glaring weak spot in this movie. There's not, there's not a moment where you're like, oh, well, that looks terrible and that looks fake. That doesn't look real anymore. So I feel like they did a good job in, especially with a movie with a budget this small, like did a good job of still making everything feel lived in. What was the budget on this movie? Oh God, it couldn't have been much, right? Because it's a it's a Blumhouse it's a movie, so yeah. yeah I mean, it's <laughs> so it's probably it's, yeah. That's it. That's maybe that's why they went so over the board with this beautiful house. They're like, this is all we're making, so we're really gonna do this. We're gonna do this upright. I got two dollars. It says that that was actually Jason Blum's house, or or, or the uh, guy's could be Blum or whatever his first name is. Yep. Uh, I bet you it was his place, or maybe it was Busy Phillips' house. She's doing maybe well. she's doing all right. <laughs> Doing all right. Those Dawson's Creek residuals are, are coming in <laughs> forever. Yes. God, so bad. All right. But yeah. All right. So let's talk about our favorite scenes. So, what's one of your favorite scenes from the gift? Oh man, definitely not the koi um, in the water. Best part of the definitely movie, not. dead koi. De- That's definitely not that. You know, I totally forgot about this section of your show. I will have to go with um, the end of the movie, man. I mean, I think that yeah. once. You know what it feels like? It feels a lot like uh, the usual suspects when he's looking at the board and oh, things yeah. are being revealed to him. Putting it all together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As he's kind of opening those gifts, one, two, three, and and he's seeing what happened. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, 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 the fact that you've been informed all this way that that Simon actually does care for his wife. He's a dick and he's, you know, he's a shiesty cat at work and. Maybe he was a bully 25 years ago, so I guess you're going to hold the grudge on him. <laughs> going to hold the grudge on the guy. But the fact that he loves his wife that much and 
you've got to watch her being possibly raped and et cetera, et cetera. And knowing that the love that you have for that child that's being born in the next room right. is suddenly probably not yours. It belongs to Gordo the weirdo <laughs> is a tough reveal, man. And that's yeah. just all well done. It's, it takes you out of that gray area that we've been talking about and it just thrusts you into this like very painful scenario for Simon and, you know, just a jacked up scenario for everybody involved, everybody involved. There's no winner here. No, it's just a mess. Yeah. There's a lot I like about the, the kind of ending sequence of that movie. Like you brought up the sequence of him opening up these gifts, but also there is a, there's a sequence that, on paper probably looks like it stands out like a sore thumb, like essentially this chase sequence in the hospital, which is like so kind of against everything else this movie has been, where it's been like a little bit distant and it's a lot of talking and wondering about what's happening. Then you have the sequence where he sees him getting on to the the elevator and he's got to try and chase him down. But that stuff really worked on me. Like it was, it was really anxiety provoking. Like, and because these characters keep kind of switching and who's the good guy and who's not like by the end of the movie, you don't even know who to root for. You know, like there's definitely a big part of you that's like he did something terrible or at least threatened to do something terrible to this woman. So you're rooting for her and you're rooting for her husband. But her husband has done all these terrible things. So he's a really hard character to get behind and root for. So it puts you in this really kind of this really anxious position as a viewer. Like you don't know what you want to happen at the end of this movie, which is not something a lot of movies can pull off. And they leave you right at the right moment, too. They don't. They don't answer it for you. And no epilogue here. Yeah. Nope. Then that's the, that's the right way to go out of it, in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, the, the two sequences I really like, one are the, the fight, uh, between, between Robin and Simon, where he just admits to everything and just says, like, I'm an asshole. Like, just deal with it, essentially. Like, I felt like that was a really, a very genuine argument. Uh, that worked and a well very on good defense by uh, Mr. Simon like, here. Where yeah, and what? It makes sense. I mean, he was like, so I bullied him when I was a kid. I was like, I was a monster of a child. Yeah, I was happens. 16. What do you want from me? Yeah. They're everybody out there. And he, does, does his behavior as a monster of a child merit what Gordo is currently doing? No. You right. know, does his current behavior, does he... Is he still a good dude? Probably not. <laughs> but like borderline yeah, at best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One thing that kind of going all the way back to Rebecca Hall is she's flipping out. We, we're talking about her being a nag and her being a, a overly aggressive. She flips out of the fact that he's got uh, files on Gordo. Like he sent a, a private investigator out for Gordo. Mm-hmm. I took that. I was like, hey, man, the dude cares about you. Somebody is obviously stalking you. He went and did the extra mile. And looked into this guy. Where has he been in the last 25 years? Is he stable? Is he sane? Should we allow this guy in our house? I thought that was a positive. Like, what's wrong with you, lady? Like, are you not paying attention? Are the pills affecting you that do you much? Think, do you think it changes anything from her perspective if he tells her? Like, I'm going to have him looked into because I'm concerned. He should have told her. Yeah, right? he should have. Th- I mean, I her. think that solves most of the – she might not like it, but she would at least – that way she's not like finding this out as she becomes Nancy Drew in the second half of this movie and is, is. investigating him. But yeah, um, I think – She's basically Betty Draper getting into the drawer. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and Joel Edgerton, the- Mad Men fan. Yes. Uh, who isn't? I mean, I wouldn't trust him if, if he wasn't. So Damn right. Um, the other scenes I really like are the two kind of dinner party sequences. Um, 
where you, I mean, I guess there's three really. Like first you have, you know, Gordo coming over to the house and then you have, you know, his rich friends coming over to the house and then you have going over to Gordo's house. And I love how all these sequences have similarities, but they're also very different depending on who's there. Like you really get a sense of these characters and who they are around different types of people. You know, and there's all these like little subtle moments where Gordo says yes to some more wine. And then as they go in the kitchen, Simon's like, nah, we're not doing that. Like he can kind of read the room. And I think that's one thing that gets lost in this movie because Simon can be despicable in certain areas of his life. He's really good at warning signs. He sees, oh, yeah. oh, he yeah. sees what um uh, he sees what Robin doesn't. Like Robin is kind to a fault where she's like, yeah, some people are just awkward. I'm sure it's fine. And she's it's like the bills and she's yeah. And she's she's not, <laughs> she's not paying it. She's not paying attention to all the things that could happen. She's not looking for the negatives, whereas he is always kind of on the lookout for that, which I think is, is a good her? thing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good her? thing. Yeah, I, but I, I think the way he goes about it is is the problem. Not necessarily. Yeah, yeah. He's what a, doing. He, he has his faults, too. And, and his faults are just being almost like a dumbass to the obvious things like why would you hide that from your wife just just that's a bit she's gonna find out like that he's so close to being a decent human being so close (laughs) just inches away yes god jason bateman if only you were justine bateman you'd be all right oh don't get me started that's that's a childhood crush right now man that's (laughs) justine bateman where's she at where is she i think she's doing like tv work now so you know she's slumming it But I guess that's kind of where she started, so maybe that's just her – that's where she's she's going to be. All right, so let's talk about the theme. So let's talk about uh, – yeah, that's fun. Let's talk about psychological trauma. <laughs> so, I mean, I picked this because, like, I was trying to come up – like, sometimes I know what the theme is. I'm just looking for the right term for it. What I was really looking at is, like – it's it's similar to people who suffer from PTSD. Some people suffer from trauma. Some people can go through the same things as other people and they can move on and be just fine. And some people go through a trauma and for whatever reason, they cannot move past it. And I feel like Gordo is one of those people. Uh, and a lot of it probably had to do with all the physical trauma he endured from his father afterwards as well. But he just like never moved on, even though like, I mean, who knows how much of what Gordo is saying is true, but like he went on to the military and kind of, it sounds like he kind of used that to avoid his problems and avoid what was going on in the files. Like, oh, is it? Okay. In the files. They say he was dishonorably discharged. He didn't just get out. (laughs) Yeah. He had a rough time in the military as well. And I think he might have done. There's, there's stuff they recite it in his file. Yeah, you know, so you know what Gordo went through, and it's not good. I, I will say this about the, the the theme, man, and and I'm not a professional, and I can't speak to it, but it feels. This is my only really big problem with the film is it feels like it almost uh, turns it into a cartoon, turns mm. uh, psychological trauma into a cartoon where, uh, you know, this these hard events that this kid went through turned him into a mustache twirling villain, Mm. turned him into a villain in a movie where, you know, there's, have you ever seen a movie? What's the movie with Brie Larson uh, where she's uh, helping uh, kids that are having a rough time? Oh, you know, I haven't Uh, seen it, but I think you're talking about short term 12, short term 12, where these kids are having these really hard lives. And to me, that feels real where, Mm. The way the pain manifests manifests itself feels very palpable. Right. Where here the pain sort of manifests itself into a horror movie where a psychopath is killing Koi and (laughs) – 
I'm pouring some beer out right now. Yeah. But you know, it manifests <laughs> itself into a very sort of tropey scenario. You know what I mean? It's a very almost slashy film, uh, slasher film. So I think that the movie almost does a disservice to psychological trauma. Mm-hmm. And it sort of – I don't know. I don't know if if – if, no, if which you kind of what, it properly. No, what you're saying is making sense to me. Uh, it's not something that necessarily like bothered me as I watched the movie because there are some circumstances where you go through a psychological trauma and you fixate on one person or one event. Um, so it makes sense that he would put all of his energy into into kind of doing wrong to this person after he came back into his life. I'm sure he feels like he can't do that to his father. I'm sure at this point his father has passed on. He can't he can't like right that wrong. So Simon comes back into his life and it is a little a little convenient, right? That he comes back yeah. into his life and now I can set my plan in motion. It is a little like evil villain like and and I think we have to remember the genre, right? Like horror movies right. have not always been the best for like let's let's talk about psychological issues and really let's uh, let's get this right. It's not about cuz like I think the the point of this movie is to unnerve you, not necessarily to be accurate. But I think you're right that it does – it can come off a little cartoonish and a little evil villain-like. Like I think that's a totally valid critique um, of what's going on here. Because I really don't give a shit about accuracy. You know what I mean? Right. Like let's be honest. I just it, – it, it's not a like a super pet peeve for me. Right. But when we're talking about your show and the way right. you kind of frame it within a psychological perspective, it does feel a, a touch over the top. But I mean – that's the nature of the beast, right? Yeah, but- I think I think the reason it doesn't bother me in this case is if there had been a moment where, you know, he finds out some dirt on him about his psychological past and he's been diagnosed with these these three things and then he got violent, then I would probably have a problem with it because there's a lot of stigma that goes along with being diagnosed with disorders and most people who get diagnosed with these disorders aren't violent. So it would be just one more example in film, in TV, whatever, where it's like, oh, they're crazy, so they're going to hurt me. And usually they're more likely to hurt themselves. So I'm glad they didn't like go so on the nose and be like, he has borderline personality disorder and that's why he's doing this. So so I think keeping it a little bit vague, I think, helps the movie um, not get on the bad side when it comes to that stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I'm good with it, man. I think it it works well as a sort of, you know, gray area toned down slasher movie, if that's you mm-hmm. know, kind of where we're going at. Yeah, totally agree. All right. Uh, so that's it for the gift. I think we both liked it. I think it sounds like we both liked it a little more watching it again. So I'm glad this, for sure. this worked out for both of us. I was afraid like I was going to watch it again and be like, God, what did I like about this? This is terrible. But I, I really enjoyed it more the second time. So we are tying this uh, with a new Joel Edgerton horror movie, unfortunately not directed by him, but directed by Trey Edward Schultz, who got a bit of publicity last year because his first film, Creature. Uh, came out last year and got a lot of great reviews. Did uh, you see it? I did see it. Yes. So did I. Uh, kind of terrifying. Not in the, not in a typical horror movie uh, way, but if you've ever been to a really awkward, really bad family gathering, it uh, it might hit a little too close to home. Like <laughs> it's, it's a uh, little rough. Yeah. Yeah. I think that. I can't I imagine that, watching it again. I'd be like, nah, I'm good. No. No. <laughs> I, I I want no part of that. I think that it does a good job of. Of showing his horror sort of sensibilities. Oh, in, very true. In yes, framing the slow mos and the way the, he uses music and the way he uses the, the dialogue between a people. damn turkey, man. It's oh fuck yeah. No, a hundred percent. I think that it's a director that has a really good uh, future ahead of him. 
I think that he probably needs a different script writer because there's not much in Kreisha as oh, no. far as the script I mean, goes. It, it almost you know, feels like it's a mostly ad-libbed movie. Like I don't know if that's yeah. true, but it feels so so down to earth and so much like a family gathering that I'm not I'm not convinced there was a script. Uh, so it reminds me of the fits, kind of like yeah, a sizzle yeah. reel. Sure, like, this is a a movie very small, you know, sort of script, but the technique that goes around it feels like something that that it's like a, a a sizzle reel for a bigger thing. So hopefully, man, he's successful with the with this thing you're doing next yeah. week. So have you seen the trailer for this? Have you heard anything about It Comes at Night? Are you excited to see it? I know Joel in it. That's mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, like, I saw the trailer and visually it looks incredible. It does look scary. It does look visceral. Um, but it, the only thing I worry about in a movie like this, like, it's another one of these, you know, kind of standard horror plots. Like, the IMDb thing says, secure within a home as an unnatural threat terrorizes the world. A man has, like, established this order so, like, you don't go out at night, right? This thing only comes at night. That's a thing we have seen in horror movies thousands of times. So it's yep. just going to be, how it comes across as far as the script, as far as acting, and as far as his framing. So I'm excited to see it, but I am, I guess, the best word I can think of is, like, wary. Like, I'm very cautiously optimistic about it. Man, both of them, Edgerton, uh, the director, they have good, you know, good, uh, what do you call it, um, rapport with me. So mm-hmm. I'm positive on it. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. All right, uh, so that's it um, for our episode. So one more time before you go, tell people how to find you online. True Bromance Film Podcast, Google it. <laughs> or go to Following Films. You might find another podcast like there too. When you're alone, when Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. So the next time you hear me, we will be doing a new release review on It Comes at Night. And if all goes to plan, we will have Chris Maynard of Following Films to do that with us. In the meantime, if you'd like to connect more with the show, you can follow me on Twitter at PC Case Study. Or you can go to followingfilms.com and check out other movie podcasts like High Rose, the True Bromance Film Podcast, and The Last New Wave. If you just want more of me, you can go to audienceseverywhere.net and check out some of my reviews. Or if you really want to help us out, you can donate to our podcast on a per-episode basis at patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. And you can get some pretty cool rewards for supporting an independent podcast. All right, so until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. When you stray, faces come out of the rain. When you stray, I always like, I you know, always love the downloads, but I'm always like, should I even tell people? Like if they bring up some movie that I did an episode on, on like episode nine, I'm like, you know, no, I never did that one. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't need the embarrassment. You know, to embarrass myself even further is I went to a podcasting seminar, like a little meeting that they did here in Tampa, and some guy was out there giving a presentation that saying you should always, always, always do that. Like if you know that there's some sort of tie into an old podcast, you should always bring it back up. So right there, seventy two episode seventy two of the True Romance Film Podcast. Check it out. Check gift. it out. All right. I'm gonna read your book right now. Give me a second. I gotta yeah. read a book. It's okay. <laughs> you want me to just read this part right here? No. That's not good. Okay, you ready? 
Verde means green. Rojo means red. Azul is blue. Marrón is brown. Amarillo, yellow. Naranja, orange. Rosada, pink. Violeta, purple. Son los colores. Mm -hmm. No colors means all the colors. You see how it has all the colors? Colors means colors. Mm -hmm. Alright, baby. I'll finish tomorrow, okay? Mm -hmm. Loves you. Isn't it? Mm hmm? It's a very big book. Yeah, that's definitely going on the outtakes. Everyone's going to hear you doing the colors. <laughs> I'm going to destroy your rep. Like, everyone thinks <laughs> Iroh is just talking shit all the time. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> when it comes to uh, that one. Yeah, you got to. There's, there, there's no limit to the to the uh, sappiness that I will achieve. 